If you're newer to us, we've been developing messages to unfold the meaning of our mission statement, page one, to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things and the joy of all peoples, and our spiritual dynamic, page two, five messages there. And then we've turned in the last three weeks to the fresh initiatives on page three, and we'll focus this morning on number five, good news to the poor. But before I jump in there, I want to say something more about spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. We used to say at Bethlehem a year ago and then for the five years before that or so, I'm not sure how far back this particular wording of our identity and our mission goes, but we used to say Bethlehem is a vision of God, and we exist to savor that vision in worship, strengthen that vision in nurture, and spread that vision through personal evangelism and world missions. Now, we have a new mission statement, and it's uh, shorter and simpler And as you study it in relationship to the old one, something becomes interesting to ask about. And if I were you, I would ask this. I see you have at the very beginning the word spreading, or on the front page here, to spread. I don't see the word savor anywhere, or nurture, strengthen. Where is the old word savor in the new way of saying the mission? And the answer to that question is, it's in the word passion. The supremacy of God is the vision of God that is Bethlehem. The supremacy of God in all of his manifold excellencies and perfections. And we have seen him, and there has been called up out of us by the Holy Spirit, call it different things, call it a savoring, call it faith, which is a being satisfied with all that he is for us in Jesus, or call it a passion. But that's what it is. It's the old savoring. The old savoring of God and the vision of God is right there. In the word passion. But the new twist, the new emphasis, as you shuffle around these words from season to season in the life of a church, is that spreading has a very dominant place here. It's right up front. Why is that? Is that a minimizing of worship? That the old Bethlehem used to put first, you now put evangelism first, so that God is no longer an end in himself? And the answer to that is no, but rather two things. God is an end in himself, always an end in himself, or he is used idolatrously as a means to something else. God should never be a stepping stone on which we step to get to what we really like. 
I use God to get to money, or I use God to get to family. <coughs> Not departing from God as an end in himself. <coughs> what I'm saying is this. As I understand this document and this statement. That when you treat God as an end in himself. And you look into his face. <coughs> and you say... You're the end of my journey. You're not a stopping point on the way to my goal. You're the end of my journey. You are all I need. And if I find anything else, I find it for your sake. If I find delight in a sunrise, I find it for your sake. You are the end, the sum of all things. If you experience that, and it goes down into the deep parts of your heart... And it liberates you from all competing, enslaving desires so that you begin to live out that supremacy. That is one of the most glorious demonstrations to others of the worth of God that you could ever have. (coughs) Worship God as an end in himself and you will be a witness. Because what we witness to is that God is the end of our quest. What we witness to is that He is the satisfaction of our hearts. What we witness to is that He is supreme in our affections. And if we try to make Him a means to something else, we have nothing to witness to. And here's the second thought. When you say, and I hope you say it, I have a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, All things, third column. One of those all things is the salvation of your neighbor. The supremacy of God in the salvation of perishing people is one of the aspects of his supremacy that I have a passion to see and taste. If God comes to me and shows me his supremacy by healing my son who's coughing, or if he comes to me and supplies extra money at the end of the year so that I can give more, or if he comes to me and works through some wonderful providence to bring a blessing into my life, if he does that, I love him for that. But I want all of that for my neighbor. I want to see the supremacy of God. Not only Him bringing me blessings, I want to see His supremacy in conquering that person's unbelief. And so to say that we worship the supremacy of God as an end in itself doesn't exclude this spreading thing over here. Come on in, Ev. It's rather, I want the supremacy of God to be so big as to reach over, transform, and include triumphantly the conversion of this neighbor. And therefore, in that sense, the spreading is built right into the worshiping. So what you're seeing on page one is a fresh focus on the spreading dimension of Christianity. It's a new heart. And frankly, God did that. God did that. What I just said in the last five minutes, I didn't think that through. And the master planning team didn't say all of that in so many words. 
I'm, I'm learning, the more I read this, what God did when he helped us with this. And it's a train that's moving. For example, when we were praying downstairs this morning, one of the women of our church, for the second week in a row, with tears in her eyes, said, thank you for the new passion I feel for the lost people in my building and the two professed faith yesterday. And the week before it was one. That is the train. That's the train. God's doing that. He's just dropping that on different ones of you. And you're sensing a fresh passion for lost people around you. And then when you come back and read this and say, oh, I see. Spread is number one. I wonder how that got there. And God is saying, I put that there. And just like I'm putting your new passion in you. Now, that takes us to paragraph five on page three. Good news to the poor. You see, the mission of our church is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, including poverty. For the joy of all peoples, including the poor. Let me read it with you. We will develop new strategies for proclaiming the all-satisfying supremacy of God's love and justice to the poor. Through personal involvement. A more welcoming atmosphere. Local missionary strategies of urban disciple making. Equipping missionaries for unreached urban peoples. Now, why in the world is that there? Why, of all the priorities that you could lift on a third page of a mission statement as a fresh initiative to devote energy to, is that there? Let me answer it with a few comments from the world and a few comments from the word, right? First, the world. There are 800 million people living in absolute poverty in the world. Almost a billion. 70 million are on the threshold of starvation every minute of every day. 400 million more do not Take in the minimum critical diet. Infant mortality rate is 14% in the poorest third of the world and 1% in our third of the world. Half the children of the absolute poor, that's those 800 million people, half of their children die before the age of five. There are 125 million infant deaths a week. Almost all of them could be stopped with simple medical treatment and hygiene. Measles, whooping cough, diarrhea. The poor who survive the first few years live to be about 47 years old in the poorest one-third of, of the world. In the richest one-third of the world, they live to be... 26 years older. 13% of the poorest third of the world will learn to read. And 90% of our third will learn to read. The average person in the poorest third of the world makes $300 a year. 
The average person in our third of the world makes $18,000 a year. Half of the least evangelized countries are the poorest countries. Or better to say it the other way. Half of the poorest countries are the least evangelized, which leads to this conclusion in an article that I was reading. Quote, the most dominant impression one gets from looking at the world in this way is that the poor are the lost and the lost are the poor. Whether one approaches the data from a desire to learn where the good news is needed or a desire to find out where the poorest of the poor are, the answer is the same. Close quote. Now, what should our response be to some of those global realities? <clears throat> Let me give you a, a kind of gut John Piper response that I have over the years. I, I try, I don't succeed perfectly, but I try to keep that reality and ones like it in front of me. I keep files on things like this. I tear them out of the paper. I ponder them and I ask, what should I do? How should I respond? So I try to keep them in front of me. Because I am so scared of the anesthetizing effects of this culture. And our affluence and our abundance. It anesthetizes us such that we cannot even see. It's true of abortion. It's true of poverty. You live and immerse yourself in enough wealth, you become anesthetized to it all. The effect of keeping it in front of me is this. And I say this just so that you understand a little better what makes me tick. Why I say some of the things I say, why I do some of the things I do. To the degree that I keep in front of me the desperateness of the world, physically and spiritually, to that degree, I feel a strong inclination away from finery. Finery and the symbols of wealth in our country. They start to feel one. You know, I don't even want to put words on it because I don't want to say that my feelings ought to be everybody's feelings. But you need to know that some of what comes out of this pulpit and some of what comes out of my life is that that's the effect it has on me. There is this drag away from finery when I keep this sort of thing before me. Now, I want to make sure you don't conclude something wrongly here. The solution to poverty at home and around the world is not to uh, throw your computer and your refrigerator in a ditch and ride the bus. And throw out all the refined accomplishments of modern technology that will help nobody, neither the poor nor anybody else. But, maybe two things ought to happen. One would be that you cultivate in that refined 
technological world where we live in this country, a huge heart for those who live right on the brink of destitution and death. Millions and millions of them just out of sight. And that with that big heart in this place, you begin to, in ways that only you can do, use this stuff. Use all this incredible achievements of universities and intellect and reflection that we have the luxury and leisure to have, to do. Use it for that instead of just how can, how can I build my company and, and have more houses and more cars and more retirement and more everything. And never give a thought that the whole company might be structured around ministering to the poor. Dream. I'm going to close this message this morning by saying, God, give us a mind to dream hearts to love. And the other thing is that it wouldn't hurt to take a year in Dhaka or Calcutta because those people who spend time outside Manila or almost anywhere in Bangladesh or you pick one they come back different. They come back different. They too have started to feel like it's just clinging and clinging too close. It's like Jesus said, it's like a vine going up around my neck. That's the way Jesus described it. The riches of this world and the cares of this age choking the seed of the word. And we need a sword to hack that stuff off of us. And I say that in the light of, you got to use it. There's a liberty here that is so necessary. And everybody responds a little differently. And I'm just sharing some of my gut responses when I keep before me this reality. You need to ask the Lord what yours should be. Lest I mislead you, I don't mean to imply poverty is in the third world only. Philip's neighborhood, poorest neighborhood in the cities, is right across the highway there. Starts at 94, goes down to Lake Street, over to Hiawatha, over to 35. 17,000 people lived there in 1990. 48.9% of them are under the poverty level. The median income in Phillips neighborhood is $12,000. Median household income, $12,000. That's where four of the staff live. In Minneapolis proper, half the children are on medical assistance under five years old. Of those half of the total, 70, 75% of them live in female-headed households, which I just stick in here as one of the things to think about that marriage is good for kids. Marriage is good for kids. Stay married if you're married. Okay? For kids. You don't have to have a perfect marriage. God never called you to be happy in marriage with anything like we demand. 
calls you to be faithful in marriage. Philip's neighborhood is a poor neighborhood and it's right on our doorstep, just like Lazarus. And so we're not just talking about Bangladesh here. We're talking about needs very close to home. Now, if our mission is to spread the supremacy of God, a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, including poverty, for the joy of all peoples, including the poor, then what does that mean? And here's the quote from the end of this article that I was reading. It says, if globally speaking, the lost are the poor and the poor are the lost, then a holistic ministry, one in which compassion Social transformation and proclamation are inseparably related, would seem to be the strategy at this time in human history. If incarnation is the model practiced by the one who ministered to such as these, then holistic practitioners, people with lives who are eloquent concerning the values and worth of the gospel, would seem to be the messengers of the hour. Now, I said, God is running this train. God's driving this train. And on every one of these initiatives, and on that statement right there, and on page two and page seven, God has started the train. For example, many of you chose to live with the poor. Many more of you have invested your lives and money in various ways in ministry. To the poor, through all kinds of outreaches and agencies and missions. God has put it in the heart of, of Jim and Raquel down here to sense his call to move down to 2910 Bloomington in the gatehouse, which the Minnesota Baptist Conference gave to us to use, as long as we'd use it for urban ministry. He said, if you'll create a ministry there, you have the house. And a lot of you have been working on that house and putting stuff into it. And Jim and Raquel are phasing out of their full-time ministry here into full-time ministry there with Interchange, a ministry of urban disciple making. Some more are going to live there. And on top of that, the, 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 the cell group ministry that they've been involved in for some time, along with the Noyads and the Domenzanes and I think some others of you, that cell of evangelism among the urban people has just split now and grown into two cells. And you should bless it and pray, oh, may that be the strategy that works in Philip's neighborhood. Oh, God. And then there's masterworks, of course, down the street. And there's Elliot Twins and dozens of you involved in, in the Elliot Twins. And then there's the Marie Sandvik Center and some of you are involved there. And I couldn't begin to list all the things that over the last five or ten years, this train is moving. And all we're doing is saying, God, is there a fresh thing? Is there a way to fan it, blow on it, bless it, pray it? Because it seems so needed and so biblical. Okay, so that's where I am, biblical. So let's do the last thing for a few minutes and go to the Word. You don't need to look these up. I'll pass over them pretty quickly just so that we can move through them. And you can kind of feel the, the, the impact of the totality rather than being too uh, picky here. Let me tell you about the meeting that Paul and Barnabas had with Peter, James, and John. There was this big summit meeting in Jerusalem described for us in Galatians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. 
So they had this big summit meeting, and the, what's at stake is the unity of the church. Who is this Paul? And he's kind of a Johnny-come-lately in the apostolic band, and he wasn't with Jesus all that time. And Well, what does he preach? And so they meet, and they come to one mind, and they shake each other's hands, and then what happens? I'll read it for you. James and Cephas and John gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. They only asked us, remember the poor. The very thing I was already eager to do. And I read that and I say, wow. Not only did it happen, but Paul took the trouble to say that it happened among the hundreds of big issues that he could be talking about here after this big summit meeting. And the big issue of the unified church is solved and the, the, the big leaders, Peter, James, and John here and Paul and Barnabas here, shake each other's hand and head off on their two ministries and they stop and say, wait a minute. There's one more thing. Everywhere you go, Paul, and everywhere we go among the circumcised, minister to the poor. Love the poor. Have compassion on the poor. Touch the poor. Send gifts back to the poor. Jerusalem. I find that amazing. That says to me that God, through the apostles, tells Bethlehem, it's a priority. It's a priority. It's important. Now, where did he get that? Where did that come from? The answer is that it came from God. Let me read you God's attitude. Let's try James 2. Now, in James's church, or in the church that James is writing to, some people walked in who were rich, and some people walked in who were poor. And they got very different treatment. And James is very upset about this. And this is what he says. If a man, this is chapter 2, verse uh, 2. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. The word fine. Fine clothes. And there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and John got it from God. They got it from God. And that's where we get it. Or if you want to get it from God's son, listen to what he said in Luke 14. Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. When you give a reception, invite the poor and the crippled and the, and the lame and the blind and you will be blessed since they do not have means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus came into the world at Christmas time in order to become poor that we might become rich. Here's the text. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, 
poverty was the means of salvation. Through his poverty, you might become rich. And when Paul looked at that, we heard that, when he saw that, when he understood that, what did he do with his own life? He stripped down to a radical, simple, wartime lifestyle and he said, we are poor, making many rich. Second Corinthians 16. Though poor, we make many rich. He made his own suffering and his own counting all things as loss the means of making many rich. Christianity has spread from the bottom up. It's spread from the bottom up. I'm not sure about strategies to try to turn that around. Maybe. Maybe not. He was born in a cow stall. His parents couldn't afford the simple offering of a lamb. They had to give a turtle dove. His father died probably early on. He had to be supported by women of means who walked around with him and used their resources. And he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. And the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That's my choice. That's the way I minister. You, you can feel why. Not only when I think about the world do I feel inclined away from finery. But when I read the Bible, I feel the same push. He came into the world and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach gospel to the poor. There are hundreds of texts in the Bible that I'm leaving out that incline us to have a heart for the poor, to be incarnational in our approach to them. And therefore, I simply take you back again as we close to number five, this little paragraph, and alert you to these four things that we will make every attempt we can to minister to the poor by personal involvement, a more welcoming atmosphere, Local missionary strategies of urban disciple making and equipping missionaries for unreached urban peoples. May God give you a mind to dream and may he give you a heart to love and may he cause every one of us to have a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, including poverty, for the joy, the joy of all peoples including the poor. Let's pray. I'll stay here at the front for a few minutes. If anybody would like to pray about anything, uh, I'll be here. The, the prayer teams also would love to pray with any of you, and they'll stand here. So if you've got a burden about something you've heard or something you brought, and you'd like us to lift it with you in prayer, we'd love to pray. Father, now dismiss us with your help to know how to be the church for each other and to be the church for the poor and to be the church for everybody that crosses our path. Whether it's Lazarus the beggar or Zacchaeus the rich scoundrel. 
Lord, make us, I pray, a spreading people. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, Amen.